Welcome back to another episode of Not All at Once. I'm Jordan Guess. And I'm Kendall Y. All right. So today we're going to talk about um, markets where people trade different things <laughs> and representations of things. Yeah. Um, so yesterday, the inflation numbers hit. Um, sadly, Kendall was proven wrong. Yeah, for like the third or fourth time in a row. <laughs> when you were texting with me yesterday, I was like, Preston, I wish Preston was in this group. Like we had a press, like a group message with Preston and he could just be like, Kendall, come on. Inflation is going to continue to rip. It's just math. It's just math. 11th grade math. So if you did not see the news, inflation hit another all-time high or another 40-year high, I guess, um, at 9.1%. Um, best meme I saw yesterday, I actually saw it this morning, but it was supposed to be yesterday. I think it was Litquidity who said, she's a 9.1, but she's inflation. <laughs> and <laughs> that had me cracking up. Oh, because yeah, you have to laugh so you don't cry. Um, so yeah, we can we can talk about that. Obviously, we've we've talked about inflation before, so don't have to go too, too deep down that rabbit hole. Um, and then outside that, we've got a good list of things, whether it's the dollar or um, yeah, the stuff that's going on with Japan. We talk about treasuries. Talk about debt markets. Um, not really going to talk too much about Bitcoin today because Bitcoin is still just being um, pretty, it's it's all staying in that 19 to 20 range, it seems like. I'm not following it too closely, but it's it's uh, it hasn't had any crazy dips or crazy rips, right, in the past week or so? No, nah, it's been yeah. pretty flat. So, yeah, I'll let you kind of drive, Kendall. Where do you want to start when you look out? On the landscape, well, what do you see? Um, yeah, we. So this morning we pretty much started recording right away. So this is because we wanted it all everything to be candid. Um, I was wrong about inflation. I do think that. Uh, I do think this is the top. <laughs> yeah. right. Not to be a, not to be a broken record here, but I'm just gonna have to. T- I have to take the other side. I think we're gonna. I think we're gonna see double-digit inflation next month. I mean, maybe. Uh, who knows? The, uh, you know, a couple of things like people talk about inflation being a lagging indicator, and it actually is a lagging indicator. But, mm-hmm. but it's also like a real value of the real-world pain people are feeling. Yeah. I don't know about you, but like, I'm definitely feeling some pain. Like, um, definitely my food budget has gone up quite a bit. Some of my entertainment things have gone up quite a bit. I do have a gasoline car as well as an electric car. And the gasoline obviously is up quite a bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think everyone's feeling it. Um, and those of us who had wiggle room, that wiggle room is just shrinking. And, and then, yeah, I was, I mean, I was just messaging with someone on Instagram earlier this morning and essentially was saying, 
I think the only way people are getting by right now, and I think I've said this on the podcast before, is utilizing credit. And that will only last so long. So yeah, it's it's not good. And you know, 9.1 is the thing that hits all the headlines, but you dig in deeper and it's like, I, I don't even know how they're getting to that number because I mean, gasoline is something that people, the average person buys weekly and gasoline is up 59.9%. I think the trend, the trend is starting to become um, viewable or seeable or detectable is basically like a lot of consumer prices, consumer consumption type of products those prices are actually going to decrease. In fact, if you look at inventories, apparently inventories across all the major retailers are spiked, which means that, you know, I'm talking about things like all the bullshit little trinkets that people buy. Like Mm -hmm. personally, I don't buy these things. Right. But that's because I'm a loser. (laughs) Uh, But uh, because that's a matter of perspective, but uh, you know, I think talking things like, clothes um you know think about things that you'll see like on instagram being advertised Mm -hmm. um entertainment things like tvs and these types of uh things i think that those prices are actually going to decrease because there's we have an influx of supply in those things the thing sorry did i say increase i meant i said i intended to say decrease um And then the, you know, like the real world assets, like commodities, basically like energy, housing, although housing is interesting. We can talk about that. Um, you know, the input materials to all the various yeah, raw materials, industri- industrial bases, those are going to continue to increase. Yeah. Well, actually what's interesting there, now that I say that out loud, a lot of the commodities have actually come back down um it's my understanding so things like the and the price of a barrel of oil came down right in the past week yeah oil has come down some but you you would expect oil to have come down further in my opinion based off of every all the shit storm yeah um i think one of the leading indicators these days in commodities is lumber and the minor sending is the price of lumber has spiked back up. So I think, I don't know. I mean, the thing is there's volatility all over the place. I mean, prices are everywhere. Yeah. I mean, I was reading the wall street journal, um, this morning and they had an article that was essentially like, if we are in a recession, it's unlike anyone, any recession prior. And the reason for that is that the labor market is still so strong. Like, there's still 11 million unopened or unfilled jobs, right? And that number was 7 million, they were saying, for the 2008, um, the 2008 recession. So we have 4 million more, and probably we're only adding to that number as boomers continue to um, retire and there's not enough people to even work in traditional, you know, there's so many people who just don't work in traditional jobs anymore. They do contract work or whatever it is, freelance type stuff. And so um, I've definitely seen that with, with some corporate people I know where they're just being asked to do so much more 
because they can't find people to, and then the automation piece for, you know, like lower tier jobs is just, it's not there yet. It will get there, but it's going to take five to 10 years. So that's the craziest part is we might end up in a recession where um, profits are falling for companies, but they're continuing to have to hire because they just don't have enough bodies. They never recovered from all the bodies they lost from COVID, like from a labor standpoint, you know, mm-hmm. that, which is pretty crazy. If we were in a recession and hiring was still like rampant and there was company, there was for, for higher signs all over the place yeah. while the overall economy is and I kind of, I kind of doubt forever. that. I think that, I think the employment numbers are good right now, but it doesn't take much pain from corporate America for the professional managerial class. <laughs> I used to work mm-hmm. in this, in this, in this industry, you know, in that, in that world. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't take much pain for those people to sort of that for the political angle to, to spin. And then all of a sudden hiring is no more. In fact, Google just announced that they are freezing all hiring and basically they're expecting their employees to, as you said, do more uh, yeah. for, this, for the same amount of money. Yeah. And, and it definitely is a lagging indicator. So um, I think it w- might've been Lynn's, Lynn's piece from the 10th, July 10th, or it might've been that Wall Street Journal, but they were saying um, in the 08, unemployment stayed low until we were well into that recession. So, so anyways, that's an interesting piece. Um, yeah. Do you, want, just, do you want to talk about housing? Yeah, we can talk about housing. I mean, th- that's a very close to home thing, I think for a lot of people, because, you know, there's a lot of young people who are, they're just now getting to the point where they're ready to buy a home and you just don't want to. You see housing. So for, for, for guys like me who I pay attention to the financial markets on a daily basis. So the number one thing that I watch for are the credit markets, Mm -hmm. but for the normal person who doesn't pay attention to the financial system, the thing that they watch is housing. So, um, it's interesting. That's an interesting where, what are you seeing? Are you seeing like pretty much? Dude, so I've, I've been watching, I'll just like every day I'll go on to Realtor. It's just one of my things that I'll just like poke around from city to city. Mm-hmm. And I'll just kind of keep like an internal heuristic on like the supply and the prices. And uh, this is not, you know, by any means intelligent. Uh, but um what I, what I have noticed over the past month specifically is a massive influx in supply, um, or at least, you know, notice massively noticeable. Mm-hmm. And then also I've seen an influx in price decreases. So, you know, listings that are dropping prices. Yeah. Um, so I think that, I think that we were well past the peak at this point in the housing bubble and it's just beginning to pop. Um, where you think prices are going to continue to rip or to come down, come down, they'll come down. The question is how far can they go? You see, I don't know. I mean, the thing is, 
my understanding is housing in Australia and Canada is absolutely bonkers. I mean, like it makes the, our, the United States housing bubble of 2008 look like peanuts. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but that, you know, that said housing in, in the United States, I think it is frothy is the way I would describe it, but it's not like insane. And like the only way that I see housing coming down more, you know, I think housing needs to come down basically like 15%. I think that's a good number, 10 to 15%, which is pre-COVID a lot. levels. Yeah. Well, no, not from pre-COVID from, from the peaks. No, no. But that would take us back to pre-COVID Oh, levels. right. Well, almost. I think real estate went up by about 25%. Yeah. So we would still be above pre-COVID, but, but roughly, yeah, I think we, Roughly, I think you're right. We need to retrace most of the COVID nonsense. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I mean, it's just like any other market. It's a supply and demand. And um, what I mean, the biggest problem I see with housing is we just don't build anything anymore. Like, mm-hmm. like it's kind of a shame. I'm, I think about this. I've been thinking about this recently myself you know, obviously I'm an engineer and like, I take pride in building things and I'm kind of like, man, you know, computer software systems, it's good that I am, I'm where I'm at. Cause there's a, you know, there's a lot of value there, but I'm also thinking to myself, like, man, I feel like society probably needs me in the real world. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like they, it probably would have been better for society. if Kendall would have been an, like a civil engineer. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, but nevertheless, yeah. Anyway, and if commodity prices keep going up, then like material, you know, the cost of building a home keeps going up. So it's difficult for housing to retrace. You know, if if housing were to drop by thirty percent, I think that we would be in a depression. I, I mm-hmm. think that that would be a global depression scenario. Yeah, I mean, I'm advising a lot. Of- I know for me, we're just kind of staying put right now. We were going to buy a house this year. We're not going to do that anymore. Um, and for most people, I'm just saying, especially because the outlook right now is, okay, the Fed's going to continue to tighten to the end of 2022. And then I think the broad consensus is that then we'll actually have rate cuts in 23. You know, Once we're in a full-blown recession, they're going to have to they're going to have to retrace more or less to, to try to get that under control. And so I know for me personally, I'm like, well, I guess I'll just wait till then. And and then also see if the prices come down. So try to get lower prices and try to get lower um, interest rates, but who knows? I mean, we could have these very similar, if the government steps in and floods, you know, floods everyone with stimulus again, then it's like, well, then what is everyone going to do? Well, and maybe they won't do this as much because they're not stuck in their homes because we're not facing like another COVID scare necessarily. But, you know, a lot of people, they just, they did work on their house and then they were really confident and they were like, well, I can go, I can afford that house. I can get into a bidding war. And so that could happen again, maybe, and then just make it even go higher. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I want to talk about that in a second. I, I do think that, I think that it's a possibility that we will never see 
mortgage rate offerings that low again. Never. Mm-hmm. I think I think so, that I think that you know right now mortgages at five point three. That might even be a low relative to where we're going. I don't know. You know, I mean, I could see it both ways. I think that the likely outcome that I see right now, so you have this difference between monetary policy and fiscal policy, right? And for those who don't know, monetary policy is the banking sector. You know, it's primarily driven by the Federal Reserve. And then fiscal policy is uh, public government spending. So it's the treasury's policy as well as how Congress allocates the budget. So, um, you know, interest rates are set through the monetary policy and the likely outcome that I see, and it changes all the time, but based off of what I saw from Yellen in the, the, in Japan this past week, which we can talk about, um, the likely outcome that I see is monetary policy will actually continue to be hawkish into the future. Um, Meaning, and this is consistent with what I was saying that I don't know if you'll ever see interest rates that low again. And, um, but then you're like, okay, well, how is it possible that the world can even survive with interest rates coming up like that? Yeah. And I think that it's possible that the world could survive through, through additional fiscal policy, meaning that the government's going to have to stimulate the economy in a number of ways. And they could do things like student loan debt forgiveness, unsecured debt forgiveness. Um, But you see, okay, so I think that that is the likely outcome that I see right now or the next year or so. But, you know, I could steal my other side, which is that inflation ripping is incredibly politically untenable. Yeah. That's like the number one political issue right now. Yeah. And if you start seeing government stimulus packages on the headlines, like, you know, you can actually, that's actually the trick that gets played is that you can sort of slip in stimulus in the monetary, through the monetary policy, because people don't understand the monetary system. Mm -hmm. And so like, you can see, you can see the, the normal person can see a headline, like, you know, fed cuts rates or quantitative easing, but they don't understand that that's like a, a stimulative effect. But if the normal person sees like government is forgiving $10,000 for the student loans, they, they immediately recognize that as like government spending and a stimulative policy. So I can steal my other side as well. Right. So I don't know. I mean, we'll see. Yeah. 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 I mean, a lot of this is, I feel like there's, we're going into uncharted territory and essentially I mean, I, I still think that there's a really good possibility that inflation just continues to go up um, just because I think that I don't think we grasp how many, how much liquidity was pumped in to the economy and how much money people are still sitting on, you know, and making it so that, okay, there's still, there's still way too much way too many dollars out there in people's deposit accounts and there's not enough services and goods to go around. And therefore people are, there's, I mean, I at least know for me, yes, I'm feeling some pain, but I, if prices continue to rise, I will continue to pay the prices. 
Um, and that's, you know, I could probably survive even another 10 to 15% before I'm like, okay, now I'm really feeling it. I really need to cut back. I really need to get serious. And so I don't, it's, it's obviously hard to know how many people fall into each camp, but, um, I still do think that that, there's that like COVID made a lot of people who are not necessarily rich. It made them feel rich, you know, and Mm -hmm. they've, they had more money than they had ever had in their entire life. And their spending reflected that. And I think still does to this day. And I think that that could go on for longer. So, Hmm. so we'll see. Well, okay. Let me ask you this. Do you, Cause see, this is where I'm like, I just have, I'm really at a, at a point in my analysis where I'm like, I have no idea what's next. So mm-hmm. me asking you, do you lean, think about the S and P 500. Mm-hmm. Do you lean, do you think we'll finish the year higher or lower than we are right now? Lower. Lower. Okay. Oh, I think, yeah, I think, I think there's still a lot of ways for it to go down. So I mean, the only, I think the only thing that's really keeping me um, sane is I know we like, I've decided for us that we don't have any big purchases coming up. So we can essentially assuming like work continues to come on, come in. Um, and even if it did, even if it slowed for a little bit, we could live off savings for a bit, but that's the big thing for me. If I was like staring down, okay, I need to have, I'm, I'm going to have a big purchase, like a down payment on a house. Okay. Then I'm in a, I think I'm in a different headspace. but in terms of like fear, because I do think the market is going to continue to trickle down. I think, I just think that sentiment is so low right now, you know, all the normies are, are finally understanding, okay, this is, this is not, it's not good. So, yeah, I'll say this too. If you, if anybody has been listening to our podcast since we started, we've been saying this from day one. So yeah, uh, our, generally our consensus has been correct so far. So pat ourselves on the back. Yeah. I, I, I think you're probably right. I think we do end lower than higher. Um, but I can, I can argue both sides. So I don't know. I don't yeah. know for sure. I think I do tend to lean towards more pain to come. You know, what's been weird is how drawn out the pain has been so oh, far. Yeah. And that's why it's kind of difficult for me to imagine it's going to continue to be drawn. That's like a, I don't know. That's sort of unheard of. See, usually, usually destruction happens really quickly. Mm-hmm. And that's, that hasn't been the case. I mean, I think politically you'd rather it it be, it happened fast, especially in an election year where there's a lot of factors that are already negative for the current, you know, party in power, but um, they don't have the tools. No one has the tools to make this quick and pretty much quick and over in a moment. It's going to just continue to be drawn out because they back themselves in a corner. I think with the debt, you can't raise the interest rates too quickly because then what's your debt service look like? And then how, you have to print more money um, or you have to tax, you have to raise taxes, all of which 
all of which lead down to one path, not getting reelected. <laughs> so if you're, you know, if you're thinking about this just from a purely, well, how do I, how do we retain power, which is all political, all politicians, that's sadly, that's their mindset. That's their incentive structure. And, um, I don't know if I'm sitting in their shoes, I don't really know a way to make this end. Even if it meant like ripping the bandaid off, because we can't do what they did in the that's, 80s. Right. Yeah, that's, to- that's-, that's like, that's like where I'm at. That's what I'm asking myself is like, <clears throat> what is it going to take for it to become politically acceptable for fiscal policy to resume? Like what, what news line or news headline is required for the normal person to be like, you know, we do have to stimulate the economy again. Right. Cause, cause right now with inflation so high, I think any sort of news headline like that is political suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I it would think- have to be unemployment rising. If unemployment started to rise in this, in this environment and people are already right on the brink, right. Of they can't meet their monthly expenses through their cash flow. And then they, and then tons and tons of people start losing their jobs because corporate, you know, corporations are just trimming. I think that's where the government has to step in and say, well, we have no other choice, but just to send out money. And then I think that, but then that doesn't help. That just prolongs. And I think that's even what happened with COVID a little bit. You know, and they they did it for way too long. They did unemployment stuff where they uh, padded the unemployment from the federal um, coffers. They did that for way too long, and um, you know, the third stimulus check. It's it's pretty debatable whether that was needed, especially given you know we can go down a rabbit hole if we want to. But if they're going to do another stimulus, I think it's. Politically, they really need to consider doing a targeted stimulus because we really just do not need to be giving guys like you and me checks for $1,400, right? Or whatever their number is this time. That's what it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it's going to, that's where, like, where my head's at. You know, I'm a Bitcoiner and I consider myself like probably mostly libertarian esque, but, but I've come to the realization that actually to really fix this problem <laughs> we're going to have to have like significant government intervention and it's going to have to be preferential it's going to have to be government helping specific uh groups of people problem um, is it's probably unconstitutional to do that probably totally but i think you could say the new like what was um the new deal or the yeah the new deal in the 30s i think a lot of the What's the FDR? You know, mm-hmm. I think, I think F, a lot of FDR's policies are technically un- unconstitutional. Um, I guess but- you could do a tax credit for like just treated the same way as like if you make under a certain amount of money, then you get this tax credit. And also, we're going to we're going to advance it the same way we did the um, the stimulus checks were just tax credits, refundable tax credits that were advanced to people. So mm-hmm. they, I guess, they could do it that way. And they did do it that way, but maybe they lower the threshold. You know, it's for single people making less than forty thousand dollars a year, um, versus I think it was seventy thousand, something like that. So, but it's funny. It's just funny being in the situation we're in, 
where we have inflation ripping and you have Kendall sitting here saying, you know, actually, I think the solution is <laughs> more government stimulus. <laughs> you know, that's, dangerous. that's a dangerous place. <laughs> it's super dangerous. But here's the thing. Here's the, here's the, the opposing side of that. I think that logically that, that line of thinking is correct. However, realistically, when I look at the political leadership in this country and like the wherewithal of, of the government to be effective, now I'm like, okay, there's no way that that will, ever, will work because it's just like, you're going to have fraud everywhere and you're going to have mm -hmm. misallocation of capital. For example, like my understanding is we're doing like 40 billion a month in money to Ukraine. That is an absurd amount of money. Like, yeah. I guarantee you. And for what? Yeah, that I should have that should have fixed the war. That should have ended the war in like a month, and that would have been a really good return on investment. I mean, I guarantee you, less than a quarter of that is even making it to the battlefield, right? Yeah. So you know, like, my gosh, <laughs> you know what? What we really need, you know, I. Hmm. All right. a proof of work, a proof of work protocol that um, has a fixed. Well, that'll help. That'll help. <laughs> I think we just need some stability, right? I mean, the, the whole, everything is just so unstable and unpredictable. No one knows what the next move is. And it's all controlled by a very small group of people that they essentially make the decision. And then they have a PR wing that, sells it and then they go do whatever they want with the money and give it to their buddies. And, and then that's just happened. I feel like over and over and over again. I mean, that definitely happened with stimulus that came out of, you know, the PPP loans and oh, for sure people got rich. The same thing happened in 2008. You know, mm -hmm. I know, I know of stories of people that, I mean, a lot of the, <laughs> a lot of the money that I, that I know around me that was made in 2008 was made in uh, ways that, in my opinion, are morally questionable, right? Yeah. So, yeah, how is that ever going to change? I don't know. I, really I mean, the SBA loans were a, were cash out refis, more or less, at three percent over thirty years. Yeah. I just I just talked to someone. I won't disclose, but I just talked to someone, and they got a two million dollar loan, three percent. That cash hit their bank account. So that's like where the real liquidity was coming in, mm -hmm. you know, okay. The $1,400 I went, to, I'm sure that was gone in a week or so. That's what but, the, sh that's what's such a shame, right? Is that I, I feel like the $1,400 was an interesting experiment and mm -hmm. worth more ex exploration. Like, I think that that's something that we should explore further, but what really caused like a lot of the, like, um, like demand shock inflation was actually um, like a lot of small business activity. Right. Mm -hmm. And like what happened, my understanding is what happened was the, the commercial banking sector has a giant reserve, like a balance sheet reserve. And usually they actually don't lend out all that much money because for pull for like regulatory reasons, which is like, you know, if they lose it, the Fed won't backstop them. But mm -hmm. my understanding is what happened in 2020 was the government basically told the commercial banking sector, fire away. We're going to backstop everything for you. 
And, Mm -hmm. and like, that's where a lot of the liquidity entered the system. Right. It wasn't, it wasn't the $1,400 checks. It was like the commercial banking sector. Yeah. And just generally at that time, people could go out and get loans for just about anything at essentially free, you know, the cost of that capital was close to zero. So it, it all, it all felt like just a perfect storm. And, and I bet there's a lot, there's so much fraud that happened with all that stimulus that will never be, no one will ever be held to account um, for what they did with that money. And was it actually in, had to be in line with their business or did they just go buy a car? You know, I saw it was some meme on Twitter where it's a uh, convertible or something really nice Lamborghini or some really nice car. And on the back of just the license plate said PPP loan. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> it's probably not too far off, honestly, from oh what my happened gosh, no. across. Yeah, yeah, that's terrible. So, so anyways, all that to say, stimulus, it seems inevitable that we're going to have to get more stimulus. Um, especially, I mean, you just think about it. You know, not we're not getting political, but Democrats are more likely to to sign on for stimulus they're not as like hawkish well no one's hawkish about the budget anymore but you know normally democrats are less worried about that kind of stuff and so if if it's like 2023 and they they understand that there's an election coming up in november 24 it's like what are we going to do we need to make we need to like calm this storm we're sending out checks again unemployment's rising the stock market is continuing to fall I mean, I think, I think that that is a real possibility. So, but that puts us right back where we are sitting right now, six months, 12 months after they do that. Right. And it's, and it's just a question of how many times can they do that before everything actually unwinds? I think that's the most interesting question is assuming things do just completely unwind all of the IOUs that is built on the dust of US dollar that is essentially nothing. What does that unwinding actually look like? And how do we even rebuild a, you know, a, um, a market on top of that? And, and that's not even really a Bitcoin question. That's just like generally how, how does that happen? Um, especially if it's not centrally planned, if we kind of decide, okay, the centrally planned thing didn't really work out. So maybe we, maybe we don't try that again. So, Hmm. but look, I'm increasingly not to be this guy, but I'm increasingly of the opinion that the most important thing over the next few years is going to be the 2024 presidential election. Mm -hmm. Cause the thing is, I think that a lot of things we're saying right now are totally rational, but I think that the current presidential administration is totally on an island. I think that they're even losing a lot of the left. Oh yeah. The media is turning on them. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. So it is not going to be fun times for them. Cause like the thing is, even if they wanted to do something that was rational and effective if they don't have any sort of political support then how can they do anything yeah they're really backed into a corner because 
you know, you can't cut spending, you can't raise taxes, you probably can't lower taxes. I mean, it's just, <laughs> you almost just have to just stand there and take it and most likely just, just leave after you get voted out. I mean, there's not, I just don't feel like there's any options right now for, if I was in leadership, I would come to work every day and be like, this seems hopeless. We can't, we can't spin our way out of this. I think that's the most hopeless part is normally in politics, you can, you can spin it. And then even right. like the media will sometimes step in and actually help you. Um, I not think to, everyone's not to looking be, around. Not to like, be over there's nothing to spend. <laughs> yeah, not to be overly nihilistic here, but like <laughs> I I don't see any any way for this administration to spin anything anymore. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think it's basically at a zero. And it's crazy. We have two more years. So what's yeah. gonna what's gonna 20. happen in those two years? Yeah, it's it's um I think it always comes back to from a from an individual standpoint, you've really just got to understand like what's your savings rate and and that's essentially the money you keep each month and then try to try to build that up as much as you possibly can and um and yeah just keep an eye on all this i mean but the i mean the two tweets that i put out on my instagram yesterday let's see one was the real wages like falling as sharp as they have um Pull it up real quick. Oh dang it, they're gone. Well, it was did you notice? Did you notice Twitter was down this morning? Was it down? Oh yeah. Well, I didn't experience it, but I saw people talking about it. I mean, essentially, the first one that I posted was talking about how, you know, the last time inflation was this high, the Fed funds rate was at twelve percent. Today, it's at two percent, and just how how crazy that is two percent is nothing like we really need it to be close to 12 percent, and or maybe even higher and there's no way we can do that and then talking about real wages you know i i have some friends who are like they're still trying to find positives um in this economy for political reasons um and it's like i don't know i just feel like it's irresponsible at this point I think everyone just needs to put politics, put their politics aside. And because everyone can agree when you look around, things are not good. And we really just need to come together to try to figure out a solution. And, and it's not going to be pretty. So, well, um, what do you think about the Twitter Elon news? <laughs> <laughs> I had a feeling this might come up. Um, I think it's, I think Elon did it again. He's, I think Elon is, He's a genius. I love Elon. And I think Twitter did not hold up. They can't prove the bots. And so that's one thing. But I think really what, what Elon's going to try to do is he's going to try to get this, get that, that equity for a lot cheaper. Mm. And I think he's not going to have any problem doing that. And it just kind of cracks me up a little bit. What leads you to hold on? What, what leads you to believe that he's going to be able to do that? I just think if I'm an investor, I'm not touching Twitter now. Essentially, if Elon doesn't want to buy Twitter, 
why in the world would I want to buy Twitter? Any stock of Twitter, right? And so I think that that is just going to continue just to create these, these sell-offs of the stock. And then, and just open people's eyes to like the fact that Twitter is a terrible company, like their PE ratio versus like the normal tech stock PE ratio is out, is out of this world. Essentially, they are way, way, way overvalued. Um, even at where they're at now, they should actually be way less from just a PE ratio standpoint. And then, yeah, I just think <laughs> Elon just stepped in. He created all this havoc to this company that was like, you know, just kind of churning around, uh, churning along, like they weren't making profits, but whatever, people were having fun and and like, well, it's it's the public, the public square. So, and now he just came and was like, I'm going to buy you. They were like, no. And then they're like, yes. And he's like, no. <laughs> and now they're and so, like, you have to buy it. Now they're like, you have to buy it. And I think he's <laughs> going, I think he will probably be able to weasel out of it. And then I think literally it's going, their stock will dump so low that then pretty much the board will have to come crawling back to him and say, please, will you buy us at, at 50% of what you originally offered? And then he might, uh, and then it'll be like, uh, yeah, maybe I'll do that. I'll do it, I'll well, do it for 22 million. I can follow for 22 your, billion. I can follow the story up until they ask him to buy it. I think that they, there is absolutely no interest from the board for Elon to ever own the company. Um, but yeah, but something definitely needs to happen at Twitter because it really is a, it really is a terribly run, I mean, company. Well, I mean, even, even the U, the UX has not been updated in how long. Actually, they did just, I don't know if you, do you use Twitter on your phone or do you use it normally on your computer? Listen, I'm not going to answer that question because I'm going to change the conversation. Okay. The, the, the Twitter, like, <clears throat> okay. I have, I have a question for you, which is, you know, right now, a lot of like the discourse that, I think you participate in this. I, you know, I can definitely speak for myself. I participate in is on Twitter. My question is, do you think that that same thing will be happening five years from now, or will it be somewhere else? Will it be something? Will it not exist at all? What do you think? Where does the there's a lot of signal that exists on Twitter if you know mm -hmm. how to how to find it right. Yeah. My question is, where does that signal go? If you're if you're alleging that Twitter is just a terrible company and they're destined to, to failure to failure, where does mm -hmm. it where does that signal go? I could I could very easily see um, an application built on the Lightning Network that takes its place, and and pretty much everything is micropayments. It's it's a payment system, but also a communication system. And I think it has to go to something like that for it to actually be an effective tool, essentially what everyone wants Twitter to be, which is just discourse. And it can be nasty discourse. It can be normal discourse, whatever. But I think what people, what puts people over the edge is the amount of bot activity, the amount of like people reaching out in the DMs and like trying to scam you and all this stuff. And then they can spin up all these accounts acting like they're, they're this person. It just happened to me this past week. I thought someone followed me. I was like, oh my gosh, Raven, this, this guy followed me. No, it wasn't him. It was a freaking fake. But I think you have to have skin in the game to, to shout out to Leb. 
I, and so I think a, an application built on top of the Lightning Network or something similar, utilizing micropayments to interact with people and to have money put up so that you can prove that you're a real human and then also add in the, the decentralized identity piece, I think all of that culminates into a new application that is just a thousand times better mm. from an experience standpoint. Okay, I think... I think you're on to something. I want to be clear. I'm, I'm going to call you out and say that I think that you're in a little bit of a bubble with this whole like fixation on lightning network. Um, <clears throat> but I do think directionally you're correct. Mm-hmm. Um, you see, it doesn't have thing- to be lightning. It just has to have skin in the game. It can be with dollars if we want right. to do that. Yeah. Okay. There you go. That's better. So... <laughs> Like I'm a, I'm a huge fan of lightning as well. I'm just being realistic. Here. I think lightning is just the, would be the most optimal solution. Well, the, the because problem, it's already inoperable. Am I yeah, saying that right? Inoperable. Interoperable. Yeah. Interoperable. The, the problem is, is that like going from a fringe technology to mainstream are, that's two totally different things. You know, like, mm-hmm. Like you and I love like our moon moon wallets, right? M M U U N. But Alex Gladstein tweeted something out and it was like, Moon is it's laughable how much of a market share they have relative to something like Coinbase and and MetaMask and these things. Mm-hmm. So scaling to the mainstream is an entirely different thing. And uh, fringe fringe, oh, there's a lot of fringe technology in the Bitcoin space. Not to say that I, that I don't think it has a lot of it has a big role to play into the future. I think it does, but but I'm very skeptical on a lot of the culture in, in involved in that. Nevertheless, um, I do think you know if you ask me that question, where does the signal go? Does it leave Twitter? I think it does, but and I think you're right that there is going to be something new. Um, I'm, I'm actually a bit skeptical if it can happen in five years, though. I think it might take 10 years for that to happen. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think we're only in really officially like year two of lightning. So yeah, it definitely could take a lot longer. I think the other piece I would point out is Twitter is not mainstream. You know, Twitter is a bubble in and of itself of journalists tech enthusiasts, news enthusiasts, and it's true. Meme, it's, meme gods. It's, it's not true. the, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm not actually interested. That's actually what I'm interested in. That's the thing I'm trying to find. That I'm mm-hmm. like, I'm, I actually want to find that bubble. <laughs> like, you know, Facebook is actually the mainstream social media, I guess. Yeah. I don't have a Facebook because I hate it and I don't want to be a part of it. <laughs> but, yeah. but um. You know, because you're criticizing Twitter as a company and like, oh, they're this terrible company. I would actually disagree. You know, I don't, I don't think that the value of Twitter can is properly assessed in its PE ratio. And I know that if you're trying to buy a company and you're trying to be a shareholder, that's what you have to care for. That's, you know, fine. I agree with all that. But if you're sitting on the board of Twitter do you really care about that? I don't think that you care about that at all. I think the I think you care about the real value of Twitter 
And in my opinion, what the real value of Twitter is, is it's upstream of a lot of culture. I think that the bubble you're describing is where a lot of the discourse begins. And it's yeah. very, it's very valuable to be at the, at the origin of that discourse. Yeah. But Twitter is just the best worst option that we, that we all have at this point. And so it, it's just, in my view, it's, it would be so easy for a competitor to come in and build, build something that gets rid of all of the bad parts of Twitter and keeps the discourse. No, um, I think that's naive. I think that's naive. I don't think it's that easy. If it were that easy, it would have already happened. That's very true. See, this is, this is my shtick with Elon. Elon wants to, he, he conveys the message that you just had and he, and he, and he tricks people into believing it, which mm-hmm. is what's the big, what's so difficult about it? It's just like, surely, you know, it's a, he, he used this phrase. It was like, are we trying to understand the, the, the seat of the soul or something, or like the soul of the human? Like, he's like, it's not that difficult. Like, clearly, you know, this is a bot. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'm a computer scientist. I'm in like an enterprise software developer. This is like what I work on. Mm-hmm. And these things are not easy and they're so multidimensional. It's not just about like, you know, Elon wants to imagine a world where he can just write a little Python script that fixes all the bot problem. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not that easy because it's not just, it's not some little technical problem. You're dealing with real cultural issues and social dynamics, which Elon is so in denial of the existence of. He wants to he wants to portray this image that he's playing 40 chess and he's the meme lord and blah blah blah. I don't think he understands even the beginning of it, and uh, and I think he's a fool. I think you know, me and you're on different sides of this. <laughs> I think that Elon's whole move here around Twitter is the beginning of the the beginning of the end to Elon. I think Elon is running out of political capital and he's going to, he's running out. He's going to run out quickly. If the share price of Tesla drops significantly, which I think is in the realm of possibility, mm-hmm. then all of a sudden his political capital will, will diminish alongside of his actual capital. Okay. Um, but neither here nor there, that's not even the only shoe that would have to drop. Um, I think that, you know, for example, actually just yesterday, not to shit on Elon. Look, I love Elon. Like, again, I've said this before and I'll say this again. It's a tough love. <laughs> it's like, I like Elon, the, the, the rocket guy, like Elon mm-hmm. building rockets. I love that guy. Most of the rest of the shit that Elon does, I don't like. Um, and so, you know, yesterday, I don't know if you saw this, uh, the director of AI at Tesla, his name is Andre Carpathy. I've been following this guy for a decade. This guy mm-hmm. is an OG in artificial intelligence. I started, I studied AI in college and I followed his work a lot whenever I was, I was doing it. Okay. And this guy is world-class. He's probably one of the best in the entire world. He's probably been tapped on the shoulder by the CIA and the FBI. He's like that, that level of good. Yeah. Um, and uh, he, he, he's been the director of AI at Tesla for a few years now. And the work that they've done is incredible. I've watched their AI day. He's presented on it. It's, it's like extremely, extremely cutting edge stuff, what Tesla AI is doing. He left Tesla yesterday. Yeah. Okay. Now I, I portray all this narrative because, you know, I think, I think that the mainstream is, does have this idea of Elon of like, he is 
like um, very powerful and has a lot of political capital. I think my perspective is I think that as a guy who tends to live upstream of a lot of these things, I think this is the beginning of the end for Elon. And it's only a matter of time until the mainstream doesn't like Elon, actually. Well, I would argue the mainstream has never liked Elon just because he he pushes back on narratives, which th- they want you to obey and repeat. And I think so, that, I think and a lot was... of people like his freedom of speech, just, just generally his whole freedom of speech thing. Like let, let's argue let's, and, and whereas like the Twitter executives are like, no, if it's, if it doesn't line up with our exact belief system, you're banned. You can't say that. I just think that politically that backlash is coming. It's probably coming in the, this election It's probably coming in the 24 election, but then on the social platforms, I think it's already here. And that's why I think there's a lot of people who are excited. And conversely, there's a lot of people who are pissed off because they don't want their ideas to be challenged. They like the bubble that Twitter provides. And I think that's Elon's brand. You can't, you won't be able to take that away no matter what happens with stock prices or anything like that. So I, I agree with everything you just said. And I, I think it's correct that actually for the most of history, the mainstream has disliked, disapproved of Elon. It hasn't really been until COVID, interestingly enough, that suddenly Elon is this widely loved guy. Um, so, but um, again, I just reiterate, I think that that's, that's running out. Um, you know, in, in terms of, so the freedom of speech thing, I'm totally on the same side as you. Like, yeah, uh, we're in total agreement. Now, I do think that there's pragmatic realities. You, you know, you can't shout fire in a movie theater, right? So there's yeah. there there are limitations to what it's not it's not black or white. Yeah. yeah. Um, but um, but the thing is, my shtick with the whole Elon Twitter thing, I don't even care about the freedom of speech thing. Frankly, the freedom of like I've never actually been negatively impacted in any meaningful way with Twitter. Not uh, yet. Well, <laughs> it, obviously they don't, they're not going to censor me because I'm just some regular Joe Blow from Kentucky. But even like the people that I follow being censored, I have yet to really be negatively impacted. They've done things that I'm like, you know, that's probably not the right move strategically, but it's mm-hmm. not something that has been like, oh man, my life is worse because of this. Not really. Yeah. Um, so, but my, you know, like when Elon comes in and he talks about freedom of speech, like that seems like a giant sales pitch to me and Mm -hmm. it has no real substance behind it. And furthermore, we were talking about like, cause you actually asked me the question, like, do I use Twitter on my mobile or the desktop? I use it on both. Here's my take. If if, (laughs) If Elon were to purchase Twitter and suddenly turn it into this like tech company that's like innovating and making all these changes. I am very confident that it will ruin Twitter very quickly. Twitter, you actually don't, the user experience of Twitter is exactly as it should be pretty much. Like there's some things you just don't need to innovate And this. I think this is one of them. Um, so I don't know where I was going with this, but uh, <laughs> I think Twitter is great. I mean, um, and I think that, I don't know, man, well, it'd be interesting to watch the whole Elon thing play out. Yeah. I mean, I think he still has, I still think he has a lot of leverage. 
I could be I could be living in the year like 2030 in this regards. Like I could it's could be true. It could it could have a long ways to go. I all I know is that I see some shit that Elon does and I'm like, man, if the normal person understood what I understand what he's doing right now, they would not be okay with it. I think eventually people see those things. It's just a matter of like how far into the future am I living? <laughs> yeah. I mean, to me, he he's a Donald Trump type figure. He's a Dave Portnoy type figure where he's people love him because of how authentic he is and they understand that in the same way that they're going to mess up in their own lives they understand that elon's going to do stupid stuff say stupid stuff but he's got to be the the best innovator the best entrepreneur of our entire generation so they're going to cut him some slack and what i don't understand you know from the climate standpoint elon people should be kissing Elon's feet. It's like this man has done more for that industry. And the fact that he gets, you know, essentially like slapped around by the Biden administration, taken out of the ESG stuff. Like it's just all that stuff. And I don't know, I've said it before. It's, it's counterproductive. It, it blows my mind. And, you know, I, I think the one point I will make on the Twitter piece is I think he was always biting off more than he could chew. He's already got, you know, what is it? Four companies, if you include boring company that he's running, operating. I mean, there's, there's only so much capacity. So, and you get to a certain point where you are doing so many things that you're not doing any of them well. And we really need him to do like SpaceX and Tesla. Well, um, at least yeah. those two. like it serves as a bad, um, what's the word I'm looking for example. Like he's, if you're a young person, this is what's interesting to me. Elon, I think, is Gen X. He's like one of the older Gen X people. Mm-hmm. He's. It seems to me that the Zoomers, the Gen Z, love Elon. And like, I'm, I'm just thinking to myself, like, I don't know. I don't know if that's a good thing, to be it's honest. Because you're so old. <laughs> me? Yeah. Yeah, I am old. <laughs> uh, I mean, these kids these days, you know. Yeah. I don't know. I I definitely, he's definitely a a really fun figure to follow. Honestly, I don't even care who owns Twitter. I just wish they would change their trajectory and allow more speech, not less. And obviously I'm with you. You can't allow blatant bullying. You can't allow like constant ridiculing of someone over like an, an, an immutable characteristic, like totally against that. And that should be dealt with. And I understand it is from a technical standpoint, extremely difficult to actually monitor all that stuff and so being more strict is the is the easier way um just from a throughput right i mean i've heard it more on the facebook side just how much shit they have to monitor with like child pornography and you know just absolutely horrendous or horrendous things that are posted like whatever it is and so i i understand that that is a technical technically a very difficult thing, but, um, but, you know, banning people for saying things that we all agreed upon five years ago, just because politically it's not popular or whatever that, that kind of blows my mind. So, mm-hmm. so we'll I think see. We're, we'll see where I, it goes. You know, it's interesting. I think we're in agreement with like policy, but yeah. I, think, I think that we're in disagreement and execution. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, what's and in- maybe Elon's not the guy to do it. I just think someone 
someone there's a big i just think there's an opportunity i, I know for me i'm that. not i'm not married to twitter by any stretch and if there's if i could put up 50 dollars to prove that i'm a real human and that sits in a little deposit account and i get like a some kind of verified human checkmark thing and i was interacting with only those types of people i pay a premium for that no doubt and um so and if it was still as fun and and the you know you know, I'm looking at a meme right now. Like it says live look at the economy. It's like this guy driving into a lake. <laughs> it's like, there's, <laughs> there's so many things that are funny on here that just give me a good laugh, but it's, but there are the other side of it is I want verified users. And, and also I, I would even pay, like I would pay per tweet that I see on with micropayments and stuff. And actually mm-hmm. even um, if someone creates a really funny meme like this one's got 34,000 retweets, it's like that person should make like 10 or 20 bucks. You know, they made something that a lot of people enjoyed. Um, so I think there's even opportunities there for on the consumption side of content and the creation side, but totally. I think a lot about this. I think that, I think there's a huge opportunity. I think that one framing, one way to frame this is actually most of Twitter should be set up as a sort of public good meaning Mm. it's no different than like the street outside my house right yeah um but then if that's the there's if that's the case which i actually feel strongly that is the case but if that's the case then you run into all sorts of issues of like well how do you there has to be some sort of people need to be making money somehow in order to like regulate things there needs to be some Mm -hmm. sort of like self-regulatory system and the only way you do that is through financial incentive right yeah um anyway yeah i don't know it's interesting reinvent uh, information as a commodity yeah basically yeah yeah well i think that's yeah it's very interesting Uh, we'll see where it goes i mean he pays he he will have to pay the one billion dollar um termination fee or whatever it is if he loses the lawsuit can't mm-hmm. prove that Twitter essentially didn't hold up their side of the bargain. So we'll see if that happens. Um, but yeah, if, if nothing else, I just, I, I keep coming back. I think it's so funny that Twitter was just like chilling. Almost like I, I picture an executive just sitting in a corner office with their feet up on the desk. And all of a sudden, like Elon, Elon is Musk, just, like, he burst in like Kramer. <laughs> agents of chaos, absolute <laughs> agents of chaos. Yeah. And, and all of a sudden that, you know, because it wasn't that long ago. That was this year, right? That he, yeah, that was back in oh, like that was March. Like, that was like May. I mean, it was, or yeah, April, May, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So uh, just the amount of havoc that one man, that one billionaire <laughs> can, um, can put on a company is pretty impressive. So we'll see where all that goes. Um, did you want to talk? Do you, have you been following... I, this is we don't have to go down this road if you don't want to but have you been following the stuff that's going on in sri lanka sort of i read the doomberg piece this morning okay i don't know do you do you subscribe to doomberg no i don't it's a worthy subscription in my opinion 30 bucks a month. okay okay um yeah so sri lanka so the doomberg piece was interesting it uh sri lanka apparently was one of the highest rated ESG countries uh, in the world. 
like about didn't they ban their citizens from uh or ban gasoline like they didn't let their citizens purchase gasoline i didn't know anything about that but that's what sailor was saying on his on the non-investment advice pod interesting yeah yeah so they're like super high esg rating okay. actually uh there's a Thunberg quote i want to see if i can find it actually because it was hilarious um Doomberg is obviously an energy person. Uh, okay. He says, to some, the fact that Sri Lanka achieved a near-perfect ESG score, it's in quotes, and then collapsed is ironic. To us, it is casual. <laughs> Gosh. Yeah, I've got to pull it up right here on, from the Telegraph. Sri Lanka, this was on June 28th. Sri Lanka has suspended the sale of fuel to all non-essential, I hate that word, vehicles and is stockpiling its limited remaining supplies to keep emergency services running as the worst economic crisis in the country's history continues to, to, to deteriorate. That, that just blows my mind. I, I wonder if it had anything to do with ESG or if it was more just like they really had to essentially just, like there's a picture where the guy guarding a gas pump with like a ak-47 like a Sheesh. military guy so yeah that's crazy i so i live my life kind of out on the fringe from time to time just because like that's just who i am because i like to i just like to be first at the at the party well, i don't know why i like yeah. to figure out i like to figure out like oh this is an idea that's gonna proliferate to everybody yeah. most of you know 99 of the shit is it's just shit so you just have to like ignore it but one of the one of the ideas that has scaled and I think is one of the more powerful ideas at, at this moment, it's still fringe, but it's very powerful, is oh my gosh, we were so wrong about this environment stuff. Mm. Um like I can't oftentimes, you know, again, like I kind of live, it's sort of like entrepreneurish. I just mm-hmm. sort of live out on the edge, but um, so I don't know if this is true, but <laughs> I increasingly, it's like the older I get, the more I realize climate change isn't even in the top 10 problems in this world. Mm-hmm. And yet, I don't know if that's true, but just continue the line of thinking. Um, and yet all of the major Western liberal world order leadership has put it at the number one issue. Yep. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what if that is totally wrong? And what if they know that, but they continue to push it because... Nah, I tend to be of the opinion that it's more ignorance. I don't, I think what's the, what's the law? It's like, don't attribute malice to what can be described in stupidity or something like that. Normally. Have you heard Klaus Schwab speak though? It I is mean, weird. It's like weirdly, uh, it's animated. weirdly uniform globally. It is a global message that that's what kind of blows my mind, but we'll see where it all goes. Again, I think that there will be backlash and, um, and you know, I don't think the global, I don't think the, the rest of the world is as used to the to backlash as the United States is just because we have such just, we do have, a very solid freedom of speech um, standard, just kind of culturally and politically. Whereas I think that that's not as existent 
in uh, other parts of the world. And so, I mean, you're seeing it in Sri Lanka. I mean, that video of them storming the presidential palace, you saw that, right? Yeah, that was, that was wild. That was insane. Like that makes, um, obviously the January 6th thing was awful. That makes that, that look like um, crumbs, you know? I mean, mm-hmm. that many people, and it, my understanding is he's still, he's still not officially, the president has still not officially resigned. So that's the latest. Yeah. Apparently he went so. to the Mal- the Maldives. You know where the Maldives are or Maldives? Maldives. Yeah. It's kind of like in the, yeah, I, I know generally where it is. It's in the Indian ocean. It's like South okay. of the South of India. They're like almost, those are like one of the first things that will go underwater. Right. The sea does I think continue. so. I think yeah. so. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see how that that narrative will be very interesting to play out because pretty much right now, you know, from an in, I mean, you, you saw it in Lens piece, but like Europe is in a lot worse spot than we are right now. And then from an energy standpoint, they really, they're really like beholden to Russia right now, and and it's really all based upon their whole like green energy stuff where they're, they're not wanting to create their own fossil fuel energy. So they outsource it so they can like go back to their, whoever they report to for all this energy or for all the climate stuff and be like, look how good we are. They just, right. <laughs> but they just had other countries do it and then ship it to them. And then that's doubly as inefficient. So the fact that that, the fact that there's just so many inefficiencies in so many markets right now, it, it just kind of blows my mind. Um, so, well, I don't know. I mean, maybe that's true. Maybe it's not true. I do know that we're deglobalizing, which is causing a lot of issues. Yeah. Well, let's look, let's look back at your list. Let's see what else. Um, we need to talk about, We've talked about debt and the treasuries, but mm-hmm. I can just talk briefly about this. I, by no means am I an expert. I'm just a software developer. I say that all the time, but just because it's very true. Um, probably the, the number one macro thing to watch for is treasuries. See, the problem, treasuries are issued by the U.S. government. It's basically a form of debt. Um, somebody buys the treasury and then eventually the U S government has to pay it back. Um, You're talking about treasury bonds, just so everyone knows treasury bonds. Yeah. T bills. That's what they're called. Uh, see the, but what if the, if the dollar currency spikes in value, which is what it's doing right now, you'll hear the, you'll hear people call it the wrecking ball. It just starts like destroying a lot of things. And if you're an emerging market, your currency is basically losing value relative to the global powerhouse, which is the United States. And a lot of your bills are actually denominated in dollars. They're not denominated in your, in your sovereign currency. And so it's basically like your debt is becoming more expensive. And the way that you hedge that is you you own treasuries and then whenever the dollar spikes, you sell the treasuries for dollars and then you use those dollars to pay back your debt. It's kind of difficult to follow, but 
Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, the point is, is that emerging markets have been selling treasuries because they have to pay back their dollar denominated debts. And so you have this influx and in sell pressure in treasuries, which causes the, the yields to spike, which is what you're seeing right now. And you'll, you'll, you'll see yield curve inversion. That just means increased uncertainty. Um, but the thing to watch for is that at some point, you see the federal government, United States federal government, um, basically pays its budget by selling treasuries. Our tax, our tax receipts are insufficient in covering the bills. So we have to basically- Quite only a trillion dollars insufficient pre-COVID. <laughs> yeah. I don't even yeah. know what, how, how bad it is now. You need to take a look at that. Um, yeah, I don't know either. But anyway, they got to sell treasuries. So there could be a scenario where treasuries go what's called no bid. No bid means nobody's buying treasuries. And if nobody's buying treasuries, well, how does the American government pay for itself? Mm. Um, so that's the thing to watch for. Raise taxes, maybe. Maybe. I mean, that's one option, but that's usually politically untenable. Um, so anyway, yeah. Here we go. The, C- the CBO projects that the federal budget deficit will shrink. It'll shrink to $1 trillion in 2022. The, all right, just take a guess. What do you think the budget deficit was in fiscal 21? Deficit? Yeah, the deficit. So like pretty much spending what we, the difference between what we spent and what we collected in tax receipts. Yeah, I would say maybe like a couple hundred billion, 200 billion. Well, well let me read the first. Remember, the, the CBO projects that the federal budget deficit will shrink to $1 trillion. In 2022, so it's about oh, one trillion. Oh, okay. Oh, uh, wow. Um, in 21, I'll just let you take a guess. 21. Well, we spent a lot. Yeah, we probably. Oh, we probably. I mean, it might be like three trillion. It's a three trillion. It was close. It was 2.8. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then the average or the annual shortfall, they're projecting that it's going to average about 1.6 trillion each year from 2023 to 2032. Hmm. that is crazy. So, so to your point, that is essentially saying that they just from the get go, we know we're going to have to print one point or we're going to have to issue T bills. Yeah. Somebody, somebody has to, has to fund that basically. Somebody has to pay for, it's not, you know, like, it's not like the government actually literally prints dollars out of thin air. Somebody has to actually buy those T bills. And typically it's been foreign foreigners, right? In fact, Japan has been our number one buyer. I don't know if they're our number one on an absolute basis, but they're the, my understanding is they're the country that is the most energetic about buying. Yeah. I think from a sovereign standpoint, yeah, I think that is correct. They are number one. So they're, you know, very friendly. We'll put it that way. Um, So they have to have confidence that those T-bills will be paid back. Yeah. Right. That's why currencies, currencies are, really a measure of a country's uh, economic power um, because it's the ability to pay back their debts, which are, which is what the currency is. It's the other side of the currency. Yeah. Cause see, just- here's, here's a little fun fact. Whenever you issue a trillion dollars in T bills, 
you're actually creating 2 trillion in money, right? That's the money multiplier because you are, oh, sorry, if the Federal Reserve buys it. So if, if somebody, you know, mm. if it's like a non-Federal Reserve market, market participant buying a T-bill, then it's just one a one, one. one for one trade. Yeah. But since the Federal Reserve balance sheet is infinite, it has no bottom. Uh, whenever the Federal Reserve pays, buys T-bills with dollars, you're, you're, you're doubling the money supply for each, for every dollar that's being issued. Because yeah. the, the debt itself has value because the debt has to be repaid. And then of course the dollars that are purchasing the debt are money. So anyway. Wow. Makes me want to go buy some more Bitcoin. The, Still, uh, we yeah, can the, talk like real quick. I mean, just outlook on Bitcoin generally. Well, Bitcoin really needs to escape this risk asset parity. That's yeah. the that's the number one concern. If, if we see a pump in risk assets over the next 12 months and Bitcoin doesn't at least maintain parity, uh, I would actually expect it to outperform. But if it doesn't, I will, then I will be very, very concerned about the future of Bitcoin. Um, but not to be overly bearish. I mean, I, do, I still think that the... It's all supply and demand. Demand will continue to grow. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think long-term, it's only one way. It's going one way. But in the short term, yeah, it's going to be a rocky road. And who knows? We might get some, we've already got some major discounts. We might get even more discounts. Mostly because we, I think we're entering, we're entering like uncharted territory with uh, yeah. a lot of just macro stuff. Who knows? Yeah, you could. We could see it lower, or it could be that. You know, Bitcoin is the leading indicator for most things, so it could be that Bitcoin has already taken its beat beating, and it won't go lower. Um, it's held. It's held pretty steady, but we were saying the same thing at twenty nine, twenty eight, twenty nine, thirty. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I would not be mad though. Honestly, I mean, again, my time horizon is so long that it just does not matter to me. And yeah, I more mean, sats per dollar would not be the worst thing for me. If I can be bearish for a moment, again, you You're should know that me. you should know. I just steal men both sides of all arguments, so um, you shouldn't take everything I say, you know, as truth. But it's possible that you know I knew that crypto was in a sort of a two thousand tech bubble last year. It's very obvious that most of crypto was in that situation. My, the, in hindsight, my naivety, my, my naivete was that I thought Bitcoin would be somewhat immune to the tech bubble, the tech bubble type analogy. Mm-hmm. And it is not, it has been right there in, you know, in lockstep with, uh, with the risk asset sell off. So if that, the reason why I'm really focused on that is that if that continues and you follow that analogy, it took Amazon over 10 years. I forget, I forget exactly the amount of time it took them over 10 years just to get back to where they were in the bubble. Mm -hmm. So 
you know, if you, if, if, if that were the case that it's going to take 10 years for Bitcoin to get back to 70,000, I don't know, man, that'd be very brutal just on the basis of like, um, the narrative, like there might be a narrative breakdown if that were real. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think the thing that makes me the most bullish continually on Bitcoin is just the incompetence of governments globally. Yeah. I that's... Think if governments could get their stuff together, then I'd be like, well, maybe Bitcoin, I'm not as bullish, but I look around and there, there's only incompetence. That is the all silver, all over that the is the silver lining. Cause it's like, you know, like if you're, cause my perspective is more on an absolute basis where it's like, let me just judge this thing theoretically. But then it's mm-hmm. like, okay, well, let's be realistic and judge this thing relative to other, other options. And it's like, well, okay, I guess it maybe is the best one actually. There is no second best. If you listen to that sailor, <laughs> you listen yeah. to the sailor episode. Yeah, that was great. That was great. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, we'll see where it goes. I mean, obviously we're, everyone's got to pretty much, you got to make your own decisions and, um, cash in the short term is going to be your, your best worst option, I would say. Um, even though it's going down by quite a bit, but at least it does, it is still the most stable and it is, um, used as the unit of account. So it doesn't feel as volatile. Yep. Okay. That was a long episode. I'm tired. You got anything else? I don't think so. All right. Now I'm the, I need to like go on a walk or something and clear my mind. I know. Or go Inform- into the bathroom and just cry. Information. <laughs> Curl up in the fetal position. No, we'll get, we'll all get through it together. So um, yeah, we'll, we'll end it there. Thanks so much for listening and talk to you guys soon.